In the last episode, we spoke about what must be the most fundamental concept that could ever exist, which is God, the source of everything. And we spoke about six principles of how we can relate to understanding God from our perspective. And now we need to move on to the next most relevant principle, which is what about, what about us? This world that was created, what's it for? So what's the purpose of existence? What's the purpose of existence? What's the purpose of creation? Why was it made in the first place? So we're keeping it light. Yeah, this is a question that I think most people would assume is unanswerable. What's the meaning of life? It's one of those stereotypically deep philosophical concepts. And probably most people past childhood will assume that there is no answer. And maybe you can come up with your own. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that you don't really bother thinking about because something that's completely unattainable, you don't waste your time trying to achieve it. Mm. Right? So to answer this question, which really should be one of the most, if not the most important question we could ever ask and we could ever ponder, right. most people don't spend time thinking about it because of the baseline assumption that it's impossible to answer. Have, well, how about your experience? Have you... Have you ever thought about this? It's one of those things that I I think you're right to a large extent. You think about it for a while, and at some point you recognize it might not be answerable. And part of finding God for me was the recognition that there's no purpose in even trying to find an answer because there's not really any, you know, we think that we know where the universe is going, you know, heat death, and we we worry about what's going to happen in... 10 to 100 years from now, or 10 to the 100th years from now. uh, And we say, well, it's all going to end anyway. And so it kind of breeds some nihilism. And so you recognize, I don't really like where that puts me. I would like to believe that there is a purpose, although I don't claim to know what it is. Yeah, I think everyone needs purpose, purpose and meaning in life. In fact, this is this has been brought as a proof of God or proof of at least something spiritual, the fact that there is an inherent need within people to seek out meaning and to have purpose in their life. Uh, But that question can be asked in one of two ways. What's the purpose of my life? One could be a very specific purpose. What's the purpose of Joe's life? What are you supposed to be doing here on this planet that's unique Versus what are we doing here? Right. What's the whole goal? What's the larger picture? Let's zoom out. Why did God create the universe? And that's the question we're going to be addressing here. And we do have an answer, according to Jewish tradition. And But I should also make a disclaimer that that question also can be asked in one of two ways. One way is, what's the purpose of existence in terms of its intended goal? And what's the purpose of existence in terms of what did the creator, why did the creator intend to create the universe? I got to tell you, I am so excited to be back. (laughs) Good. Okay, so let's let's, uh, address these questions. So we have to know that one of these questions is answerable. The other question is not answerable. So, for example... Uh, This is a crude analogy. I'll explain why. But let's say you come across a forest, you come across uh, some object in the forest, and it's mysterious to you. It clearly 
has been designed and it has some sort of function, but you don't recognize it. And so as you start to pick it up and investigate it and examine its properties, you start to piece together what it's supposed to be doing and you recognize what its function is. And just from an analysis of the object without having any interaction with the creator of the object whatsoever, you can derive its purpose based on its function. It's kind of a mechanistic analysis. You look at what it does, and so that must be what it's for. Exactly. So that you have an answer for. But there's another question. Someone created this device. Why did they want to create this? And that you have no answer for. Maybe it was to fulfill their own need for whatever this function is. Maybe it was a gift for someone else. Maybe it was an experiment. Maybe it was a failed experiment. Um, maybe so it was you can't, an accident. You can't tell what the guy who invented the pen wanted to write. Exactly. Or, or why he wanted the pen to begin with. Maybe it was just for sale. Maybe, right? So the intention of the creator is something that's beyond you. Now, the reason why this analogy doesn't fully work is because you happen to not know the creator's intentions because you don't have any communication. If the creator would walk by, you could ask him and he could tell you. But that's not the case here. The, when we ask what's the purpose of the creation of the universe, and we can understand based on the function of the universe what it's supposed to be doing, and we examine its properties, and that we can find out. But to ask the other question, why would God want in the first place? Why would there be a desire in the first place to create the universe? We can't answer that, not because we can't ask God directly. It's because the intention for creating a universe precedes the universe. All right, help me, help me understand that. Well, the intention to create the universe, the desire to want to create the universe, mm. was external to the universe which means it's external to the finite realm, which means it's encompassed within God's infinitude. And that is something which is inherently inaccessible. It's not like if my mind were, were clever enough, I could figure it out, or if I had some sort of prophecy, I could ask. It's something that the finite mind cannot possibly comprehend because we only exist within the system. Mm. The intention to create the system, obviously, originated beyond the system my brother asked me recently to describe what the fifth dimension would be like if there were a fifth one and he said well you know we use it in mathematics you can you can work with it um we don't know we we can't comprehend what that fifth dimension would quote unquote look like but that certainly doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or something similar to it doesn't exist well but it, it's theoretically comprehensible Sort you, of. You might not be able to picture it or draw it on a piece of paper. Okay. But you could at least conceive of it, right? To some extent, yeah. Uh, I, it, it's probably an imperfect analogy, yeah. Right. So it, it's a good analogy, but it's important to know where it breaks down because this is, this is the point where it breaks down, is that the answer to the question, why would God want to create the world, is inherently inconceivable. Okay, but what we can determine is what was the purpose of creation, and that is very relevant to us because we're, we're in the game, we're in the system, and to know why the system exists would certainly be helpful 
to navigating it. Definitely. Okay, so let's let's start here. Chapter two, Betaklis Abriya, the creation, the purpose of creation. Number one. In this first line, he just gives the answer. There's no buildup. The answer is, the purpose of creation was in order to bestow goodness from himself, from God, unto another. There's a lot to break down there. And in fact, this one concept is is where a lot of Kabbalistic teachings begin uh, and where there's a tremendous amount of controversy and discussion about understanding this one point. We're not going to dwell on that. In general, this book is not going to focus on theoretical esoterics. We're going to be focused mainly on what's relevant to us. So in this first line, he lays it out as a simple fact. And in the previous chapter, he said, there are many things which could be derived logically, but we're going to be relying on Jewish tradition and taking it at its face and just trying to understand it as it's presented to us. So in this line, he says, the purpose of creation is for God to bestow goodness upon another. He continues, Now look, He, Hashem, alone, is the true perfection, the true completion in Hebrew, shlemus, that is completely devoid of any deficiency. And there is no perfection that is comparable to Hashem at all, because it's infinite perfection, as we learned in the last chapter. V'nimtza, now it comes out, that any element of perfection, anything that we would call perfection, that is not the infinite perfection of God, it is not a true intrinsic perfection, but rather it's a relative perfection with regard to its possible deficiency. It's got its own limitations. Does that make sense? I think I'm with you so far. Yeah. So anything that we would call perfect is only relative perfection. But it's not true perfection. It's not. It's not perfect in all the dimensions. Exactly. That God is perfect in. But true, complete perfection is only in the infinitude of Hashem, of God. Hashem is God. And therefore, once it's Hashem's desire to bestow goodness upon another, lo it wouldn't be enough for Hashem to want to give a little bit of goodness. Here's a little. If the entire purpose of creation is to receive goodness, it should be the maximum goodness that it's possible for it to receive. The maximum amount that it's able to receive from God. And since God is the true goodness, the true ultimate perfection, the source of good. So this goodness that God wants to bestow upon another, what is this goodness? I have two questions for you right now. 
Okay. The first one is if the purpose of creation is to bestow the maximum goodness that that creation can receive, why wouldn't God make the creation capable of receiving all the goodness? That's that's question number one. Okay. Um, can we can we get into that one first? Actually, sure. We are going to address that question. Okay. All right. Yeah. So if if we're gonna if we're gonna cover it later, then then perfect. But that's the first thing that that made me think of. Second is, it sounded like you were saying God is goodness. Is that a fair assessment? I'm glad you brought that up. Whenever we say God is, whatever the end of the sentence is in that sense, it's going to be false. We can't define God as anything uh, because God is, is undefinable, is, is infinite, and the definition of infinite is it has no definition. But at least from our perspective, what we relate to, like in the previous chapter, of true perfection, goodness, that's we relate to God as being perfect, as being good. Right, and maybe we could even translate goodness as pure existence, because it's just positivity—the existence of essence. I see, but I don't want to get too philosophical with that. Okay, but we're not saying that the definition of God is goodness. It's—it's it's more like I think it was the exact words where God is the one true goodness, something similar to that. True ultimate goodness. True ultimate goodness exists. Only with God. Okay. So it's not it's not an attempt to define God or, or relegate him to solely that one thing. It's not a definition of God because it's only it's only from our perspective. Okay. I have to I'm, I have to bring up that as as a Jew learning this stuff as an adult, I'm often finding myself trying to be careful not to accidentally step on any taboos or to say anything that would unintentionally be blasphemous. Right. So there's no fear of being blasphemous when we're just learning. We're trying to, to understand these things. So that you don't have to worry about. But it is, you're, you're bringing up a much larger question, which could be asked in a different context. Uh, let's say one of the principles of, of our faith is that God has no sort of corporeal form. And yet the Torah itself refers to God as having a hand and... God seeing and God doing all these things and God having even uh, we have sources say that God has a beard <laughs> and wears a talus and tefillin, all these uh, these Jewish accoutrements. So what does that mean, right? So just as a side point, because it's not our main topic, we'll address this very quickly. Whenever the Torah says that God has a hand, it obviously doesn't mean that there's any sort of physical property inherent to God, that God has a physical hand. What it means is that God is interacting with the world in a specific way. And the method of interaction that God is implementing in order to to interface with the world is the same way a person would with their hand. I see. All right, so it's it's how we affect the world. So it's, of course, the analogy we're going to use to describe how God affects the world. Did you say it's how we affect the world? Yes. What does that mean? So we use our hands to affect the world external to ourselves. Right. So, you know, someone might think that 
this is just an analogy then. What you just said, we have hands, and that's how we interact with the world. So as an analogy, the Torah uses the concept of a hand with God. Yeah. The truth is it's the opposite. There's a method of interaction called having a hand and using a hand. And that's an inherent method of interaction that God uses with the universe. As an analogy for that, we were given hands. Okay, so speech would be another method of interaction. We are the analogy. Okay. All right. All right. This is a created in his image kind of thing. Right. So, but let's let's get back onto our topic. We've said two things now. Number one is that God wants to bestow goodness upon creation. It won't be a small amount of it. It will be the maximum amount that the creation is capable of receiving. And number two is that what what is that goodness? What is the goodness that God is bestowing upon creation? It can only be God himself. Because any other goodness would be counterfeit. As we've said, true ultimate goodness and perfection exists only in godliness, in his infinitude. And so to have anything else that would might be called good that isn't that is just is counterfeit. And so that wouldn't be real. It's so an imperfect good, perfection, whatever it is. Right, and that doesn't make any sense. So what, what must be is that God's desire to bestow goodness upon creation is what we're really saying is God's desire to bestow himself mm. upon creation. But then he says, This can't be possible either. Because on the other hand, this true goodness, as we mentioned, can only exist with God. So how can God give creation godliness if it's not God? You've stumped me. So So here we're stuck. But luckily, God had a solution. So the solution is as follows. Therefore, Hashem's wisdom decreed that the essence of this bestowal of goodness, of true goodness, will be The bestowal of this goodness is in so much as that the creation can cleave and merge and connect to God himself. And then via God can experience that goodness. Then comes out that the creation itself cannot possibly contain or receive this true ultimate perfection, this true goodness, But even though it itself cannot receive it, by connecting to God and resembling God in some sort of way, then vicariously this creation can experience godliness in so much as that it's connected to God. All right, I I think that actually makes sense. We aren't receiving, it's not as if... He's giving us, Hashem is not giving us goodness as something separate from himself, but rather we're given the ability to connect to Hashem and thereby receive that goodness. Right. So this still doesn't answer your your first question that you had earlier. Why can't it be given? It could still be given. Meaning, 
the point that you just made is it's true that it's not some sort of package. There's no coins that mm. Hashem can distribute, and this is just good, right? It's the essence of godliness, and that means connecting to God. But theoretically, that could still be given, meaning possibly a person could not have to work for it, and God could just connect to the creation, and that creation would experience godliness vicariously. So your question would still hold up. Why is that not the case? Why was creation not created in a way where it can just experience full maximum godliness instantaneously? That is the essence of that question, yeah. Okay. Number two is the answer to that question. However, God's wisdom decreed that in order for this good to be perfect, to be true, it's fitting that the recipient of this goodness should not only be a recipient, but should be a master of that goodness, should own the goodness. Perush, let's explain that. Someone that has acquired that goodness for himself, as opposed to having it been dropped upon him or it in a happenstance manner. Vitira, and see, in this way, the creation can resemble God. To the degree to that it's possible for that creation to resemble God's perfection. Meaning, one of the elements of godliness is that God is independent. It would be an inherent contradiction to have godliness, to experience godliness, and have it be given to you. God is completely independent and altruistic. And in this scenario, the recipient would be completely dependent and taking. I see. A complete antithesis of God. So you can't actually have the goodness or, or you can't have the godliness without actually uh, having agency over or taking mastery of acquiring that goodness. Exactly. You must acquire it for yourself. Now, you can't ever truly be 100% independent like God is, which is he's going to say in a moment. Well, you know what? Let's read it. Because God himself is complete and perfect by himself and not in a happenstance way, as we learned in the previous chapter. God's very essence demands complete and independent perfection. However, that's impossible to exist in any other creation by virtue of the fact that it is a creation. It's dependent. That a person's or a creation's nature should demand that it should be perfect and be devoid of any deficiency? No. In order to resemble God in this way, in, in any, to any degree, at very least, the creation must acquire 
its perfection. And at least through the acquisition, there can be some sort of resemblance to God in the sense that you acquired it for yourself and therefore you own it independently. This is making a bit of sense. Okay. So now we have the answer already to your previous question. Why can't the creation just be created in a way where it receives maximum goodness? The creation must actively acquire it for itself in order to truly experience godliness. So we're already limited because we're a dependent creation. So there's no need to limit us further by preventing us from even resembling God in the aspect of acquiring goodness. It's not just that. It's that if we wouldn't be able to achieve it on our own, then we wouldn't be able to experience it at all. And it would undermine the entire purpose of creation. Right. Okay. Therefore, God decreed and arranged in creation that there should be different categories. There are matters of perfection and matters of deficiency. And he created a creation, a creature that is capable of of experiencing both perfection and deficiency. And was given to this creation and this creation was given the means by which it can acquire for itself perfection and to eliminate its deficiency. And at that point it can be called somewhat similar to its creator to the extent that it's possible. And then it becomes fitting to truly cleave and connect to God. I think I understand that. I, I, I recognize that I don't have a grasp on that the way I did with the other stuff we've covered up to this point. So now that we've finished number two, let's let's go back and recap what we've done so far, and we'll, we'll try to summarize it in, in, in some easier language. Number one is that the purpose of creation is for God to bestow goodness. Now, that won't be some sort of small amount of goodness. That will be the maximum goodness that creation could receive. And also, the nature of this goodness is godliness himself. And so therefore, God wants to bestow himself upon creation. That's impossible because a creation, which is finite, cannot be godly, which is infinite. So therefore, the solution to this is that the means through which the creation can experience godliness is in so much as that it can connect to God. I'm with you. And cleave that with God. Makes perfect sense. Now, another caveat is that in order to truly experience this goodness, this godliness, one element of godliness is that it's independent. And so that if it were freely given to the creation, it wouldn't be a true goodness or true godliness because it would be antithetical to what godliness is, which is independence. Therefore, the creation must acquire its connection to God on its own to whatever degree is possible right. for the creation. And so therefore, God created a context, a creation, 
in which there is a concept of perfection and deficiency. Because theoretically, there wouldn't need to be any room for deficiency. There shouldn't be anything as, as deficiency. There's just God. So God created a world in which deficiency exists so that there can be room to acquire perfection and eliminate that deficiency. And in that way, the creation can earn its own perfection by fighting away the deficiency. That's our chance at independence. Exactly. I got it. Okay. So is it fair to say at this point that we are just talking about maybe not an abstract, but just all of creation? At this point, he hasn't specified what what creation we're talking about. Okay. Just the concept of something that has been created beyond, so to speak, God. Yeah. Number three. V'amnam, however. Aside from the fact that creation now has the ability to acquire its perfection, which makes it proper and fitting, able to connect to its creator by resembling the creator, through acquiring this perfection for itself, it comes out that the creation is cleaving and connecting to God continuously. To the point where its acquiring of the perfection and its connecting to God are one and the same. Meaning, his point here is we shouldn't think that it's a cause and effect. That if we would latch on to God, if the creation would latch on and cleave and connect to God, then there's an open channel for experiencing godliness. Then it will just flow through. That's not what's happening. The connecting to God by resembling God is the perfection. That actually, that seems like a, like a logical corollary to what we've learned thus far. Good. Since God's existence is the perfect, is true perfection, as we've explained, it comes out that whatever is perfection is not something independent of God, but this perfection that the creation is acquiring is like grabbing onto a branch that's sprouting from a tree. Where it's all connected, it's all one. The branch and the tree are one. Even though this creation isn't grabbing onto the trunk of the tree directly, because in, in the analogy, you can't become God completely. Okay. The grasping onto the branch is an extension of God. Now, now we can see true perfection is just an expression of God's existence. And any deficiency, any lacking that we see is only a result of a hiddenness of God. 
We mentioned before, how could there be even such a thing as deficiency when there's just infinite God? It right. Was a, it was a creation. It can only exist, A, from within our perspective, but out, what our perspective is, is that we are lacking a clarity of God's existence. We can't clearly see God. So anything that we perceive as bad or deficient or wrong is only... It's a lack of God. It's a lack of our perception of God. Okay. All right. But yes, it's one and the same. Practically speaking, it's a lack of God in our world. But that's only from our perspective. Hmm. The way this language is used in Jewish sources is Hester Ponov, a hiddenness of God's face. The face, the countenance, is where you can recognize someone. It's the clarity of who they are. If a person would hide their face, then there's a lack of clarity in experiencing that person. Right. Okay. So any sort of deficiency that exists is a result of God, quote-unquote, hiding his face. Venimza sheheoras panov. And the revelation of God's countenance, of God's face, is therefore perfection. Now it comes out the Hester Panov, the hiddenness of God's face, is the root and the cause of all deficiency. The degree to God's hiding himself is directly proportionate to the degree of deficiency that shows up in the creation. And again, it's not, it's not a cause and effect. It's one and the same. So it refers to God hiding himself. This is an intentional thing. Yes. It's intentional because it's the only way to accomplish. Why are we bringing this up now? This seems like a... Well, it's the production of the deficiency versus perfection yes. kind of scale. In order to accomplish the purpose of creation, which is to bestow goodness... One of the conditions is that the creation must achieve the perfection for itself, which necessitates a possibility for deficiency. That just made a lot of sense. So what is that deficiency? Is God hiding himself? And yes, it's intentional in order to create the possibility of achieving a revelation of God, cleaving to him and, and acquiring that perfection for yourself. That's awesome. The alkane, therefore, Hanivra Hazeh Haoimid Beshikul Bain Hashlemus Vehesurinus, Shame Todisa Oravehester. Therefore, this creation which is standing in the balance between perfection and deficiency, which themselves are the results of a revelation of God or a hiddenness of God. Behis Hazkoi Bashlemuyos Vahaknoisamoisam Batsmoi, he nehu oiches boys Barakshamai Shuhu Sharishvamakorlehem. In this creation's strengthening itself to acquire perfection, which is the goal, what it's really doing is grabbing on to God, latching on, which is the source of perfection. Sounds like he's just kind of summarizing this point to right. make sure that we understand it. We're, we're drawing up this transitive property, A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. In order to accomplish and to achieve perfection, what is perfection? It's the result of a revelation of God. So therefore, when this creation is trying to accomplish and achieve perfection, what it's really doing is latching on to God, therefore increasing the interface that it has with God, that right. revelation. 
and to the degree that it increases its perfection, perfecting itself, so too, simultaneously and directly, it is connecting more and more with God, increasing that interface. To the point where it accomplishes and reaches the goal of the perfection that it is intended to achieve. Comes out that this creation has connected to God, and has accomplished the goal of creation by receiving the goodness and being perfected by it. And also, and it itself is the master and owner of its perfection as well. That's number three. So let's summarize so far. Number one said that the purpose of creation is in order to bestow goodness, maximum goodness, which is God himself. That's impossible, so the only way for that to be achieved is if the recipient of that goodness is connected to God. And vicariously, through its connection to God, it can receive this goodness. Number two, the only way that can happen is if the recipient of the goodness, the creation, achieves it for itself and therefore becomes a master independently over its own perfection to the degree that it's possible. That will make this creation similar to God in a maximum way, thus enabling the interface. And number three, we dove deeper into understanding how all of these concepts are one and the same. The perfection is the merging with God because perfection is God. Mm. And deficiency is only a result of God hiding himself. And so therefore, in this context that the creation is placed in, where there is a necessary possibility for deficiency, all that is, is a hiddenness of God. And its goal is to decrease the hiddenness of God. And by achieving perfection of itself, it is latching onto God and increasing the revelation of godliness. That is the purpose of creation. Okay, so that's number three. Number four. Vehine, lishayiu b'metzius ha'anyanam hashayinam ha'ela shel shleimus v'chisarun shezacharnu v'timotza abriyus shezacharnu b'tchuna shehit tzricha liyos. In order for all of this to exist, this context that we just mentioned, that there's a possibility for godliness or perfection and deficiency. And that there needs to be the possibility of achieving, acquiring perfection and elimination of deficiency. And this creation has the means through which it can acquire it. Certainly, there must be many disparate elements involved in this grand system. There's not an on and off switch, I choose perfection or I choose deficiency. That would be too easy. There needs to be a complex context involved. And many different relationships between these elements of creation. To the point that the purpose of all of creation can truly be achieved. However, 
The creation that we've been speaking about that is intended to receive this true godliness. Which means the connection to God, the resemblance of God, as we've explained. That element of creation is called the main creation. And everything else that exists in the universe is only a helper, an assistant. It's ancillary to this main creation. And therefore, they are considered an ancillary creation to the main creation. Okay, so this is the first time that we've started separating the aspects of creation. But so we're saying that there is a main creation to which those first three points absolutely apply. And the other stuff is just the setting where that occurs? It's half true. You're right because there's a main element that can really achieve the goal. But the entire system is necessary. In order for this main, quote-unquote, main creation to achieve its goal, it needs a context in which to push away deficiency and acquire perfection. And in that sense, the entire context is necessary as well, and it all becomes one. So up until this point, it's not as if we were speaking about one specific part of the creation, and right now he let us know about it. We were speaking about the creation as a whole. Mm. But now that we've started to divide things, we know that there's a main point and there's an ancillary point. Kind of like when you have a nut growing from a tree, you have the edible part inside and a shell that grows on the outside. It's all necessary and it's all one, but the main part is the edible food on the inside and the shell is just there to service it. I see. Number five. What is this main creation? Can you guess? I feel like I know. <laughs> what do you Adam. Mean? Adam, the human being. And everything else that exists, everything else that exists in creation, whether it be above man, which is angelic figures and things of the sort, and things that are below man, lowly animals and vegetation and rocks, all of them were only created for the sake of mankind. So that's the first time I ever heard that particular concept, that the angels and the heavens, you know, all, all of this stuff was created for the purpose of mankind. It makes sense it should have to be like that, right? If the entire purpose of creation is to have some creature that can achieve godliness, and that's the human being, so what is anything else for? That's incredible. Only to service us. Now, we, we will later on in the book get to addressing different elements of the creation and in a very general sense what their purpose is, but we won't get into details. And largely this knowledge is hidden from us. So all of these other elements of creation are only in existence in order to assist the human being in accomplishing its goal. According to each of their properties and their many dif different elements that they possess. 
like we will explain later on in the book. Intelligence, the intelligence of man, and all good character traits. These are the elements of perfection and goodness that man can use to become perfect. And matters of physicality and poor character traits. These are matters of deficiency that we've mentioned. Help me understand uh, something here. It sounds like from that you could draw the conclusion that being strong is a deficiency, being physically strong. Good. It, it is not. So what does it mean when he says that matters of physicality are inherently bad? They're, they're matters of deficiency. What he means is, similar to the analogy with the nut in the shell, if you would treat the shell as important in and of itself, that would be problematic because it's only there to service the nut. Okay, so becoming strong for the sake of vanity wouldn't be good, but if you become strong and it means that you have a healthy body so that you can pursue these other aspects of goodness, then then that is good. Right. Physicality for its own sake is useless. However, it's an extremely important vessel that must be used in order to accomplish the goal. When the body is used to facilitate the other elements of man, which up until now he hasn't even mentioned the soul, he's mentioned intelligence and good character traits. When the body is used to facilitate that, it becomes one with the larger purpose. But to be used for itself is a deficiency. Okay. I think, I think I'm with you on that one. But so it sounds, all right, so it that extends beyond something, maybe a simple example like vanity, but we're talking about all of the things that, that the material world kind of calls to us with. All the things that kind of, we know that they're maybe not the best things. Um, th- there's a million of them, sexual gratification and overeating and, you know, you could go down a long list. Laziness would be one of them as well. So all those things, they're kind of of the material world, it seems. And yes. so those are all inherently bad. Those are, or may, I don't think the word was bad. Also not inherently bad. There's no problem with enjoying the physical world as long as that's not the goal. Okay. All right. So you have to recognize that these things only exist so that it seems like these create the opportunity for deficiency uh, if you focus on them. Right. If you fail to focus on or recognize that there is something beyond these material gains. It's all part of the context. Man was placed in this world to accomplish this one mission, to achieve godliness. If the body is being used to facilitate that goal, then it's useful. When the body is being used in and of itself to become stronger just so that it can lift things, <laughs> right, or so that you look better in the mirror, then, then that's where you've deviated from the purpose of reality. But 
to have a healthy body so that it can facilitate your spiritual goals is the purpose of your of your creation. I'm with you. I get it. Thank you. That concludes chapter two. In chapter three, next time we'll delve more into the nature of man, what we were created for more specifically, and how we function. Thank, Thank you, Joe. Thank you. This has been fantastic.